Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 11, 1 Samuel, chapters 7 and 8. We're going to finish up 1 Samuel 7. And we're going to get a short glimpse into chapter 8 today. Now this section of 1 Samuel brings up some deep and complex theological issues. So we're going to spend all the time we need to thoroughly examine them. Now I ask you to keep your focus because some of what we're going to discuss will challenge the assumptions you make when reading the Bible. Things you've taken for granted. Or as Dr. Robert McGee likes to put it, we're going to see just what it is that you believe you believe. All right, and see if you really do. Or if there is actually any basis for it beyond traditions. Now last week, I rattled some cages, challenged some sacred cows, by asking you to examine yourself in regard to which things in your life you are hanging on to that please you. But perhaps it has no place in the life of a believer and certainly doesn't please God. And I told you at the start of that lesson that by its end, some of you might go to bed and have a sleepless night wrestling with that challenge. And others would simply be mad at me for pulling the covers off of a deep-seated problem you'd rather not face. It doesn't surprise me, of course, that that's what happened. Now, perhaps the main thrust of my previous teaching was that followers of God who, in the story of Samuel, wind up being judged for idolatry are not those who have renounced the God of Israel. Rather, idolaters were invariably those Hebrews who steadfastly remained Hebrews, who had permitted pagan ways to infiltrate their faith, their beliefs, their worship practices, their traditions, their customs, and then finally their daily behavior. This condition that I called the believer in the kettle happens over an extended period of time and in such a stealthy manner. And we don't actually even notice any change or, or often do we sense a growing danger. Now too easily, we distract ourselves from the real issue of idolatry by drawing this mental picture of ancient Israelites who made some kind of wholesale rejection of Yehovah and instead adopted in full the Canaanite gods. Now, interestingly, Israel also felt that idolatry was essentially conversion from Yehovah worship to Baal worship, which they knew they hadn't done. So in the midst of their idolatry, they didn't see themselves as idolatrous. Okay. In other words, from that Hebrew point of view, as long as some acknowledgement of the Lord remained in their lives and culture, 
and in their rituals and conversations. The pagan ways that became intertwined with the ways of the Torah were thought to be pretty normal and acceptable to God. Anything but idolatry. This is also the modern church viewpoint of idolatry. Paganism at first was but a, but a tiny and unnoticed blemish on Christianity. But over time it has metastasized. It so embedded itself into our cherished customs and traditions that we don't even notice it. Or we've decided that it's better to just accept it and move on rather than perform radical surgery and remove it because of the disruptions it might cause in our lives or, 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 or in our relationships if we did do that. A paganized Christianity has become the new normal. Okay? So as an alternative means to put our guilt aside and our concerns, we've developed very creative ways of rationalizing it all away. From declaring that we've taken a pagan custom, attached God's name to it, now that makes it holy and acceptable to the Lord. To saying that we hang on to this pagan thing because it's fun. Or we don't really worship it. Or that on balance it's a good thing. Idolatry is a misunderstood biblical concept. Generally speaking, pagans are not called idolaters. Now I'm speaking from a biblical use and intent of the word. Idolatry, you see, and, and, and apostasy are a very similar character. Both assume that the person who is committing either of these sins is a follower of God, not a pagan. You can't commit idolatry if you're not first a believer in the imageless El Shaddai. You can't... I mean... In case this isn't making any sense, all right, try it this way. If you, you can't get fired if you don't have a job. The term fired only has meaning to a person that was employed. Apostasy only has meaning to a person who has something to apostatize from. You can't commit idolatry unless you have already been set apart for Jehovah, and thus it is forbidden for you to have things in your life that you place on par or above God. Whether that's false gods, pagan traditions, or some material thing whose importance overwhelms all else in your life. Now I tell you this so that you can kind of uh, reset your thinking about what the Lord considers idolatry to be. And so, who idolaters are, as opposed to what we typically think of. And what it was that the Israelites were doing and thinking in Samuel's era, that the Lord judged them as idolaters. Once more, idolatry is not renunciation of God in exchange for something else. 
Rather, it is merely the inclusion of pagan practices, impure practices, into one's worship of God. And then all the accompanying traditions and lifestyle that invariably comes with it. Idolatry is the illicit mixing. It's the shanets that leads to tevel, confusion. That the Torah prohibits and it warns against. And unfortunately, we modern believers have been sold a bill of man-made theological goods that says erroneously that since the law is dead, illegal mixing must be dead, and therefore idolatry, except for some spiritualized, ethereal concept of it, must also be dead. So when we incorporate decidedly non-scriptural, pagan-based elements into our worship and holiday observances and even into symbols we use to express our membership in the kingdom of God, we're doing no less than what Samuel called all Israel to mitzpah, to repent from doing. Now as we close last week, we saw the Israelites in a mopping up exercise of the Philistine army that was routed supernaturally by the Lord. The Lord, through a combination of some kind of thundering, all right, probably literally thunder, of a level and of an extent that's nearly unimaginable, and by His divinely causing a feel of overwhelming terror within the enemy soldiers, He sent them fleeing in all directions. They had crossed the border into Canaan with the intent of punishing Israel for what they deemed as an unlawful assembly at Mitzpah, which they felt was a threat and an affront to their authority. But before they arrived at Mitzpah, the Lord struck them. Let's reread a short, short section of First uh, Samuel chapter seven. We're going to start at verse eleven. First Samuel chapter seven. Three o five in your complete Jewish Bibles. The men of Israel went out from Mitzpah, pursuing the Philistine, Philistines and attacking them all the way to Betkar. And Samuel took a stone, and he placed it between Mitzpah and Shane, and gave it the name Aben Azer, explaining, Adonai has helped us until now. Thus the Philistines were humbled, so that they no longer entered Israel's territory, and the hand of Adonai was against the Philistines as long as Samuel lived. The cities between Ekron and Gat, which the Philistines had captured from Israel, were restored to Israel. And Israel rescued all this territory from the power of the Philistines. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued in office as judge of Israel as long as he lived. Year by year he would travel in a circuit that included Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah. And in all these places he served as judge over Israel. Then he'd return to Ramah, because that's where his home was. And he would judge Israel there too. He also built an altar there to Adonai. 
The Philistines were so devastated by their defeat that they ceased from excursions into Israel for, for quite some time. And they retreated deep into their own territory to lick their wounds. And the glory for this victory is awarded rightfully to Yehovah for the reluctant, uh, rather the resultant new political reality now of the region. Now, this was memorialized with a stone monument being erected near the site of the battle from some years earlier where Israel lost 34,000 men. As a sober reminder that the Lord weighs things out in his justice system. You know, when I talk about that, we need to envision an ancient balance scale where the scales are unfairly tipped in one direction by men's evil inclination and selfish ambitions, but the Lord supernaturally and providentially tips the scales back the opposite way to punish the wicked and rescue the oppressed. God reverses the fortunes of men at his will. And now that the Philistines were put into their place by divine decision, Israel enjoyed several years of relative peace, giving them the time and space needed for the coming transition from a loose confederacy of tribes to a united nation ruled by a Hebrew monarch. But what we witness at this point in the book of 1 Samuel is also the next stage of the God pattern that was so well established during the period of the judges. Faithfulness to God, followed by apostasy, followed by the oppression of God's follower, uh, followers by the enemy, followed by their repentance, then culminating in deliverance. Israel repented at Mitzpah. And so they were delivered at the very place where they were oppressed and defeated by the enemy earlier. Once again, the worshippers of Yehovah live in peace and harmony with the Lord. And the extent of time that this shalom lasted is defined in verse 13 as, as long as Samuel lived. Now recognize that historically, Samuel lived well into the reign of King Saul. Right, dying only a few years before Saul died. So the military victories that we will soon see credited uh, in some extent to Saul in his, early on in his career, many of them over the resurgent Philistines, are to be understood within the context of God protecting Israel on account of Samuel. Okay. Not long after Samuel's death, conditions in Israel once again seemed headed back towards apostasy and, and oppression. Now, God's victory over the Philistines at uh, Aben Azer was so effective that Israel even won back territory that they had lost hundreds of years earlier. The Philistine strongholds of Ekron and Gat were originally assigned to Dan and to Judah. But they were never able to conquer and hold on to these places. There is some disagreement 
among scholars as to whether this passage is saying that Ekron and Gath um, mark the outer boundaries of the territory that that uh, Israel recovered, and so Israel reestablished what lay in between, more or less, or if these cities were actually included, and now Israel inhabited Ekron and Gath. There's good sound arguments both ways, so we're just going to have to leave it as an unsettled matter. But fortuitously, there was also peace in this same period of time between Israel and their other arch enemy in the region, the Amorites. However, when we examine this in light of the geopolitical realities of the time, we see that the age-old adage of the enemy of my enemy is my friend is quite applicable. See, the Amorites and the Philistines were bitter enemies as both of them sought to dominate Canaan and much of the Middle East. So when Israel subdued the Philistines, it was natural that for a while anyway, the Amorites found themselves in this very unfamiliar position of being on Israel's side. So, plus, since Israel no longer had a threat from Philistia over here on the coast, that that they had to monitor, in other words... Israel didn't have the prospects of a two-front war facing them all the time. Right? They could be much more prepared and able to take on the Amorites, and the Amorites understood that, and so they lay low for quite a while until a better opportunity to start up hostilities again arose. Well, Samuel was now the highest religious and secular authority over Israel. And while I have said that Samuel was the first judge or ruler since Joshua to have authority over all the tribes of Israel. I don't want to overextend the picture of Samuel's influence. All twelve tribes seem to respect that Samuel was God's ordained prophet for them as a, as a whole congregation. But not all the tribes and their princes and clans were so ready to accept too much in the way of his absolute authority over them. Even his religious authority was muted somewhat by the remnant of a hereditary priesthood that existed at a place called Nob, and probably some other places too. And so his influence, while much more widespread than any other judge who had come before him, it wasn't so great in all parts of Israeli-occupied Canaan that he was at all king-like. In fact, we see in verse 15 that on the one hand, Samuel actually traveled a circuit um, from his hometown of Ramah to Bethel to Gilgal to Mitzpah where he would act kind of like a circuit court judge. But on the other hand, when we look at a map, we see that these four towns represent um, a rather limited area in central Canaan. And so Samuel exerted much less presence and power over the tribes to the north and to the south um, than he did in the, the central region of Canaan. Now, we see in the final verse of this chapter 7 that Shmuel indeed saw himself 
in a religious as well as a civil role because he had an altar of sacrifice built in Ramah, which was his home. And there were also altars in these other places that he frequented. Now I think, I think we need to notice that by the standards of the law of Moses and the instructions given in Deuteronomy, this is a pretty peculiar setup. I mean, we have Samuel, the Levite, but the non-priest Levite, as the highest religious authority who even performs sacrifices on behalf of Israel, but by all rights should not have. We also see the Samuel-authorized presence of many altars of burnt offering, even though the Lord says there should be only one. And extra-biblical material, archaeology and, and, and geographical reality, tells us that there were many other altars scattered all over Canaan, used by the various Israelite tribes and clans. So even though God had delivered Israel from oppression and given them shalom, for a time anyway, Israel was hardly pure, right? particularly when held to the standard of the law. And even Samuel's behavior and his assigned duties have huge question marks hanging over them. But this peculiar set of circumstances in Samuel's era is a lot more understandable if we'll view it from the broader context of men's foibles and, and, and human affairs. This was unquestionably a period of great transition for Israel. And transitions are always messy things. Usually confusing, often chaotic. Look no further than our present era, when generally every American knows that we are in a messy, confusing, and chaotic time. We know we're in a transition period, but we just don't know what we're transitioning to. Goodness, even our current administration ran on the platform of change. Change to something else. And indeed, that's what's happening. But just like for Samuel's time, it wasn't Samuel who caused the conditions for transition. He was just an agent of the transition. So it is in our current time when President Obama didn't cause the conditions for change that we're all in feel, all feeling, some are embracing and others are dreading, but he is the agent for bringing about that transition. Samuel could not have known the outcome of all that was happening. And I guarantee you that neither does our President or Congress know the ultimate outcome of their tidal shift in direction towards a secular, one-world, ecologically-driven policy. Let's move on to chapter 8. We're just going to read the first opening verses of chapter 8. When Shmuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. His firstborn was named Yoel, Joel. His second son was named Aviyah. 
they were judges in Beersheba. However, his sons didn't follow his way of life. They turned off of it to pursue riches. So they take bribes to distort justice. All the leaders of Israel gathered themselves together, approached Samuel in Ramah, and said to him, Look, you have grown old, and your sons aren't following your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. You know, it's challenging for me to express all the depth and ramifications of what's happening at this point in Israel's national history and God's redemptive history. And complicating the matter is that this is another one of these places in the Tanakh where I have an important decision to make. Do I teach you only what is here Or do I take the time to also explain why what is here has such significant repercussions and how broadly it has affected Judeo-Christianity and how in turn Judeo-Christianity has tended to treat this portion of the Bible as a red-headed stepchild because of its nature. I've also debated for some time at what point to open up this can of worms And believe me, that's not too strong of a term. And look at it in depth. And this point in 1 Samuel affords that opportunity. So after a lot of thought, I've decided that I wanted to take the time to do my best to explain the ramifications at this point in the Old Testament, even if it might seem as though we're heading off on a major detour. But I promise you, it really isn't. Now let me begin by saying that the difficulties posed in the books of Samuel and Kings have had a lot to do with Bible academia's belief that a whole new approach to scriptural and theological examination was needed to account for what is written in these biblical manuscripts. And the result was a new study discipline called literary criticism. Now, while literary criticism has an awfully highbrow sound to it, it's not at all hard to understand. All it means is that one method of many to study the Bible and to try to understand how it came to exist, how it's written and put together over time, and as a means to check its reliability from a scientific viewpoint, is to study the various styles of writing and the various usages of of certain phrases and key words to see if that can help us to tell if a book was written by one person or more than one person or to see if it's maybe been corrupted or redacted by yet another hand at some point in history. Literary critics claim to be able to answer those kinds of questions by identifying unique literary styles in grammar that can even tell us when certain passages were written. Thus, this is why over the last few decades, a new debate 
has arisen in theological circles over whether some of the books of Bible prophecy were actually fraudulently or disingenuously written well after the fact. In other words, for example, some literary critics claim that Isaiah prophesied the fall of Jerusalem only after it happened. And this is because they claim that the way the writer of Isaiah uses certain words and phrases indicates that it was a much later rather than earlier time that it was written. And that Isaiah the prophet was not even the writer, or at least not the sole writer, and only his name was used so that the real writer would have instant credibility. Now you can probably tell by my tone that I'm a lot more than skeptical all right, of these literary critics whose work is by its very nature subjective. All right, and therefore there's utterly no way to prove any of it. But it is a great way to put doubt into the minds of believers and to make a name for oneself. Okay, so basically, what they do is they make these questionable claims that can neither be proved nor disproved, but they're often believed and accepted by other professors because these literary critics have the proper academic credentials and reputation. Then those claims are taught to Bible college and seminary students and in a short time presto it's fact now most modern the most modern literary critics view of Samuel and Kings is that two different writers at a minimum with two very different agendas competing and opposing agendas actually wrote these books and that when carefully reading them we're going to see two contradictory and irreconcilable God principles at play they say and that in itself that is evidence of some ancient writer injecting himself probably at the order of some king of Israel to make sure that his viewpoint was expressed to oppose some other viewpoint. Now the obvious conclusion then that they draw is that the books of Samuel and Kings can't be trusted. And that the foundation of that belief at the foundation of that belief is that in one instance we have God despising the idea of a monarch governing Israel, a human king. But then later on, the Lord reverses course. And not only accepts the idea of a king, but makes it the centerpiece of his plan of redemption. And the truth is, that when we read these books, pay attention, through the eyes of a modern, Gentile, traditional, evangelical, Christian viewpoint, That's exactly what seems to be happening. Now, this takes us back to something I told you quite some time ago in our introduction to to our rather extensive study of the book of Judges. It is that despite the standard Christian stance 
that the book of Judges is all about God expressing his disgust at the possibility of Israel wanting a human king to rule over them, that in fact, it's the opposite. It is my firm conviction that when we read in context without an agenda, all right, or a doctrine-driven approach, and we remain intellectually honest about it, the book of Judges shows us unequivocally that God was teaching Israel of its need for a king. He was preparing Israel for a king. Demonstrating that all of humanity could not function properly without a king. Because that's how he created us. And that in the end, all mankind would be ruled by a king. The issue was never if there would be a king. It was all about what kind of king. Would it be a typical, self-serving, politically correct, worldly king, like all the kings that had come and gone and would arise again in the future, who ruled in a way that upheld their own greatness and imbued to them great wealth and personal benefit? Or, would it be a king who expressed God's attributes of love and truth and being a servant to his people? and dealing in perfect and merciful justice based on God's laws and leading in absolute purity. Therefore, the issue we see being batted around in Samuel and Kings is not whether Israel should or should not change from being a tribal confederation led by a combination of judges and high priests to an all-powerful sovereign monarch, but rather... It was that God's people needed to be taught that if they persisted in their desire for a king who used their neighboring Gentile kings as their role models, that by definition it would be the wrong kind of king. And all of these kings fail. Such a king would not be the kind that God would eventually install. And as we go forward into Samuel and Kings, this is the big picture that we need to keep in mind at all times. Okay, up till now, that's the easy part of today's lesson. What I have to tell you next gets complicated. But it needs to be told. Now as regard... Samuel and Kings, we will see both good aspects and bad aspects of Israel having a king. In fact, a number of aspects of the king issue are raised, but generally only one of them is concentrated on by most theologians. What has happened is that due to two major historic innovations within Christianity, only one aspect concerning the nature of a king for Israel and God's reaction to it was considered as valid and all other aspects that we'll find in these books are considered anywhere from less valid to irrelevant. Now I know it may sound like a little bit like gobbledygook right now, but I'll unravel it as we move along. Now these two historic Innovations within Christianity that I'm speaking about are first the entire notion 
of orthodoxy versus heresy, and second, the advent of modern systematic theology. The orthodoxy versus heresy notion arose within the church sometime in the late 1st to early 2nd centuries. And modern systematic theology was created in the 18th century. Now I'm going to briefly explain both of these things, and I'm, I, I think you'll see why it's important for all believers to have this information. See, this orthodoxy versus heresy notion, in a nutshell, is this. That within the Christian religion, there are a set of non-negotiable doctrines or principles, as defined by that denomination's leadership, that any member is to accept without hesitation. Heresy is to question, let alone reject, one of those doctrines or principles. Simple enough. A person who operates firmly within the orthodoxy of their denomination or sect and doesn't stray is allowed to remain a member of that congregation in good standing. A person who questions or rejects one of those non-negotiable doctrines is branded a heretic and is usually punished or re-educated until they repent. Or they're outright excommunicated from that congregation. Folks don't even remotely think this is a thing that was reserved for the ancient church, for some that, that dreadful time of the Inquisition. It's alive and well and more active than ever within the church today on a nearly universal basis. Okay. Now here's a familiar example of this within evangelical Christianity. If a certain denomination believes that the rapture will occur at the midpoint of the tribulation, then depending on how adamant that particular denomination is on that issue, the mid-trib rapture becomes orthodoxy. If someone within that denomination comes along and challenges or rejects that view, they're a heretic. And thus they're shunned by the rest of the membership or even turned out as a member. This is orthodoxy and heresy at work. Okay? Now what's important to understand is that this notion of orthodoxy and heresy didn't always exist. A research project that was documented and published by Professor Daniel Boyarin at Stanford University, has provided good evidence for what has been suspected for, for quite a while. That until around the time of Christ, Judaism didn't operate within the notion of orthodoxy and heresy. In other words, one sect of Judaism could and regularly did claim that another sect was terribly wrong in their theology. They'd love to throw out the term and you destroy the Torah. But it didn't result in a demand for their excommunication. If a student of Hillel violently disagreed with a student of Shammai, the accusation and threat of, well, if you believe such a doctrine in opposition to what I believe, then you can't possibly claim to be a Jew, didn't occur. 
Judaism allowed for continuous and wide-ranging debate and dialogue on scriptural issues and doctrinal questions. All one has to do is take the time to read the Talmud. And you're going to read a a wide-ranging viewpoint on practically everything about the Holy Scriptures. But there's no call for excommunication for the opposition. In general, it remains so today in all but a few circumstances. The most notable exception being a Jew who accepts Yeshua as Messiah. So until around the time that the Christian apostles began to stir up controversy claiming Yeshua was Messiah, we really don't find any real evidence of Judaism embracing this concept of orthodoxy and heresy. But in Christianity, the place of orthodox and heresy have become a mainstay in church governance. And many of you have experienced it. Or you know somebody who has. Beginning especially with the Roman church, the orthodoxy heresy issue wasn't a particularly complicated matter to administrate. If the church decided you're a heretic, that was that. Often it was a rather arbitrary accusation that served some other agenda that the victim knew nothing about. But it invariably also served one very major purpose. All dialogue concerning church doctrine was shut down. It was political correctness taken to the extreme. During certain periods in past centuries, a conviction of heresy cost you your life. The only possible dialogue about entrenched church doctrines took place at rare ecumenical councils of the highest church leadership behind closed doors, and even then it was a pretty dicey situation for the participants depending on the particular doctrine that was being discussed. Now many of us have at one time or another been part of a church or a synagogue whereby we knew full well that there were, there were certain sensitivities, that electrified third rail, that you just couldn't openly and usually not even privately broach without a real possibility of retribution and rebuke. However, with the advent of modern systematic theology, this fully accepted concept of orthodoxy and heresy in the church has found a whole new expression. The the systematic theology that we know of today, that is present throughout the Protestant church and a form of it in Catholicism, was essentially Christianity's response to the threat of the European Enlightenment of the 18th century. And the radical new theories of these academic elites, such as Hume and Voltaire and Kant. These philosophers' teachings all revolved around demystifying religion, taking out any supernatural or miraculous element, removing it, throwing it away from Judeo-Christianity, and essentially popularizing secular humanism. The belief that there is no God. 
and that the human intellect and rational thinking was the key to mankind's progress. It was the Enlightenment movement that elevated the scientific method to the ultimate of all human protocols designed to discover truth. And basic to the scientific method is that someone, a scientist, theorizes possibilities, possible outcomes, and then proceeds with reproducible testing procedures of those theories that seeks to prove or disprove each theory and thus eventually arrive at the truth. Thus, since one can't test for spirit, spirit cannot exist. If one can't tangibly test God, then there can be no God. That which is not observable using our natural human faculties and senses cannot be trusted as true or even existing. Faith, then, is not scientific since it's not testable or tangible and thus faith is but a religious word for ignorance, superstition, and myth. An enlightened person cannot possibly believe in God because there's no tangible evidence concerning him that can be reproduced in a laboratory. This is the Enlightenment view. Now Christianity took notice of this new reality because church leadership found itself under scathing attack from educated folks who applied this rational thinking approach to long-held church doctrines and teachings. And in the end, Christian scholars found themselves with no evidence to prove the validity of their doctrines, and in some cases, no answers to some very difficult and disturbing questions that had the effect of challenging their faith. And since they couldn't come up with a scientific test for the evidence of God, they were able to provide some answer. They weren't able to provide some answers yet for some very disturbing questions. One of those disturbing questions, believe it or not, that they faced, very interesting. It, it tormented Christianity to no end in this time period was, whatever happened to Israel? After all, both the Old and New Testaments prophesied at length about Israel's exile from the land, but also about their unmistakable return. Israel was last exiled about 70 A.D. 17 centuries had passed. They hadn't been heard from. There seemed to be utterly zero prospects for their return. Since the mystery of God was no longer acceptable, every biblical and spiritual question one could contrive demanded a firm answer. Christianity's rational answer to the glaring dilemma of what became of Israel is what we today dub replacement theology. God has rejected his original people and the church is the new Israel. And the new Zion is wherever Christians set foot. Thus the prophecies were correct. We just misunderstood who Israel was. Problem solved. 
But this is merely one example of this process of finding answers to every possible theological question. So the church, being composed of imperfect humans, did what humans do. We adapted. We compromised. We tolerated the demands of the Enlightenment society. The church, in order to be seen as modern, decided to present their their theology systematically in a scientific format so as to hopefully be less ridiculed by the new enlightened mindset of the European population and to fit in better with a society that was becoming more educated and religiously diverse. And so a system to define Christianity was created whereby a number of standard groupings or categories of the major theological questions common to all Christianity were formulated. These categories go today by some very fancy and esoteric names. Scholars just love to use big names that only they understand. But they're not really at all difficult to grasp. I won't give you all the categories, but some, for instance, are Christology, who and what is Christ, Soteriology, what is salvation and how is one saved, Eschatology, what does the future hold for believers and how does it play out, and God, who is God. Then there are several more, usually around ten categories. And so how any given Christian religion or denomination answers those questions posed by these systematic categories becomes the non-negotiable faith doctrines and membership rules of that particular religion or denomination. I always wondered how you got here from there, didn't you? Well, this is how it happened. The answers to those theological questions became the orthodoxy of that religion or denomination, and by definition, then, any other answers than theirs is heresy. Now, whether you're a member of the Catholic, Protestant, Anglican, Baptist, Assemblies of God, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, Methodist, Episcopal, or Messianic Jew, or any other, of the roughly 3,000 Christian denominations in existence today, although you may not have realized it, what you believe you believe about any given subject or aspect of your faith is the result of those ten or so categories of questions and answers produced by Christian systematic theology. So now that I've put forth this information, and I'm not done yet, by the way. For this week I am, but... How does this affect a modern believer, or even a modern seeker of God? It is self-evident, isn't it, that there is no universal consensus or agreement within Christianity as to the answers to all those questions. Or we wouldn't have 3,000 denominations that generally compete with one another and often declare that many of the others are cults and not Christian at all. 
Instead, any sort of disagreement or attempted dialogue about Christian doctrines is often met with either, perhaps you just don't belong here anymore. Or, you can't call yourself a Christian if you think that way. That's just another expression of the orthodoxy, heresy notion that over time was molded in to systematic theology. So here we are, nearly 2,000 years after Messiah came to usher in a new era. And the unity that he encouraged us to have in him couldn't be more splintered. Is this how it was supposed to be? Is there any way to turn that clock back to before there was even such a thing as systematic theology or back even further to before there was even this notion of orthodoxy and heresy? But even more important, since there's approximately 3,000 competing sets of what is supposed to be divine truth, how do we determine which is the right set? Is there a right set? Now, I'm probably not going to be able to answer that question quite the way many of you would prefer. Partly because I think the question itself is born out of a set of assumptions that are quite dubious. But I think... I do have a way to approach this matter and it has to do with how we read and study and perceive the Holy Word of God. It involves something really hard. It involves our willingness to step outside of ourselves and our preconceived notions for a while. It involves opening ourselves to discovering some unconscious but absolutely ingrained assumptions that we hold deep within us that we're not even aware we have. These unconscious assumptions act like a filter that blocks so much of what God has for us. It impedes our spiritual maturity and at times it strips away just enough so that we get the partial story and thus not so much an erroneous as an incomplete truth and that's what we're going to get into next time as we will soon employ what we've learned now in our study of Samuel that's for next week